the new year brings the promise of change. Some changes are inevitable. Eventually, I've heard it gets colder here, and you actually have winter. That's inevitable. It's going to come. Maybe not this year, but it will eventually come. Other are choices that we make. There are changes that come that we choose to do. I'm going to, and whatever it is you promised you were going to do in the new year. Uh, come to church more often, read your Bible daily, lose weight, whatever it is. You made promises and said you were going to do it because it was as good a time to do it as any. Those are choices we make. 2019 was a year of a lot of change for this church. Around this time, last year, your honored planting pastor was finishing up his time here, preaching some of his last sermons. He had been working last year to set up a a smooth transition, as had the officers, as had the search committee. By the time, by this time last year, my wife and I were making plans to visit you guys for the first time. And we were nervous and we were wondering what you were like and you were wondering what we were like. It was that exciting time, you know. We were very welcomed. And we remember those stressful times fondly and are still grateful for that sweet beginning of our relationship. But those changes were just the beginning. Uh, Even before I preached my first message here, the session talked to me, and they talked about some changes they wanted to make to communion. And I said, okay, guys. I said, they're just going to blame me, though. Why didn't you do this before I came? (laughs) No, 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 it'll be okay. And so we preached a couple of sermons, and we talked about it during our membership stuff at the Coop, and we talked about it a lot, did a good bit of teaching on it, And then we changed the way we did communion here at Evergreen uh, to a different way than you guys had done it in your history. That was a big change, and you guys did great in adjusting to that. The next changes came as we talked to MMO. And starting around September, we started having a conversation with leadership in MMO. We were asking them if they could do fewer, more impactful activities uh, in the church. We wanted to try to clear up the church calendar and do things that were uh, more impactful, take on some bigger challenges. But the challenge is, of course, you take on bigger challenges, that's more moving parts, that's more money, that's more things that can go wrong. But MMO and everyone involved there has stepped up to the plate and Uh, has begun to move forward with that process. We've got our first larger activity coming, the dance that's coming, and uh, Carrie is working hard on heading that up, and I'm encouraged with this uh, progress. Uh, Good job, guys, on, on what you've done there. The near future for us holds more change. That was just a couple of things that changed last year in six months. But there's changes coming that I can't figure out how we're going to avoid and in some ways can't figure out how to even soften them. There's going to come a day when we don't get in our cars and drive here. You're going to drive up here, arrive here, and you're going to realize I went to the wrong place. Our church no longer meets here. 
You just put it on autopilot when you left the house. You drive here and you realize you've got to drive down Red Lane and get to Lower Hill Road because we'll have a church there. We're going to break ground and have a church there. It's going to be a big change. You're going to miss setting up chairs. You're going to miss carrying stuff out of... You're going to have to join a gym, some of you, to get your exercise because you're not going to be carrying sound equipment and stuff every week. Things are going to happen that are going to change that are as sure as winter coming our way. There's things coming. We'll be spending a bunch of money. We'll be changing policies and improving policies concerning security and all the stuff that comes into having your own building. There's talk of church planting. There's stuff going on with branch groups. We've got a new crop of new officers we're about to train. And when they come on, it's going to be a new group of leadership in the church. And they may want to try to do some new things too. It's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot of change. And there's just not much we can do about it. But what we can do is look at the Scriptures and find out what God did in His church when it was moving into a period of unbelievable change. That if God wouldn't have been at work supernaturally holding things together in Acts chapter 2, there would have most definitely been a church split. There would have most definitely been internal, external problems that started happening in the church. But God held them together in Acts chapter 2 through a variety of ways. Some of those ways, they held them together and demonstrated it was His will for the church to go through all of these dramatic transitions. Some of these are things that are duplicated today, and I'm going to talk about those. Some of the things that happened here aren't duplicated today. And that's sort of the first and second sermon I'm going to give today is first we're going to look at the things that God did to unify, hold His church together during this time of transition, yet aren't duplicated today. And then we're going to look at six or seven things that are. Acts chapter 2 is our text for today, and it's turned into a very difficult text to teach from. Because since around uh, 1906 to around 1915 and the Azusa Street revivals that happened in uh, Los Angeles, California, people in America have been looking for passages in the Bible to explain modern prophecies, modern claims of healings, modern claims of miracles, speaking in tongues, and other events that happened during that nine-year period. Pentecostal evangelists like Amy Semple McPherson, Oral Roberts, and a whole bunch of others that were more local went around and taught an enormous number of people quite convincingly that this was normative, that what you see in Acts chapter 2 concerning these kinds of miracles and God's activity was what good Bible-believing churches should expect to be happening. And so they went around and taught people that, and they did so quite effectively. If you're driving down the road and you see a full gospel church, 
That's an example of a church like that who believes that you're only teaching part of the gospel if you only teach the part of Acts chapter 2 that says repent and be baptized. That's only part of the gospel. The full gospel is speaking in tongues and everything else that comes with Acts chapter 2. You may have heard of more contemporary versions of that with the International House of Prayer movement Uh, which is abbreviated IHOP, but not the good IHOP. This is the bad IHOP. (laughs) Mike Bickle is uh, its founder, and they're doing a conference in uh, in Richmond. I saw something on Facebook about that. They, They promote this same perspective in a new and I think more dangerous way than the third wave charismatics and Pentecostals did. I ran into Pentecostals and Charismatics as I was a young man in Mississippi. They were interested in studying the Bible. So was I. They were serious about doing what the Bible said. So was I. I fell in with them just like you would imagine any young believer who's passionate about wanting to do what the Bible says. I fell in with them. And so I was praying to, to speak in tongues. I was praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit the way they said the book of Acts described it. And everything that they said that I was supposed to experience, I did. I prayed for all that stuff and all of it happened to me. Now, I'll be willing to talk to you privately later about my own understanding of that experience that I had But more importantly is that I discovered that there were many people inside that movement who were just like me, who were earnest, trying to do whatever the Lord said in His Word we were supposed to do. And if the Bible said it, we wanted to do it. There were other people in the movement that were like little individual members of a cult that were like mobile cults moving around from place to place. They were extremely aberrant in their theology. They were extremely heretical. And yet they just moved and flowed around the charismatic Pentecostal circles because they spoke in tongues, they'd been filled with the Holy Spirit, and that was what unified us. Other than that, people didn't care much about what you believed. Well, a lot of these connections that they made between the Christian life and Acts chapter 2 needed to be disconnected. And I found those disconnections to be able to move on in maturity, to begin to move away from some of those aberrant practices. I found it in God's Word. And it's hard to talk about Acts chapter 2 without first trying to understand what's going on there in terms of the miracles that you're seeing. Each one of these miracles have a counterpart in the Old Testament, in the historical redemptive story that God is telling about Jesus Christ coming to seek and save the lost. And after you identify where these things are rooted in the Old Testament and how the original audience would have interpreted them, it pretty much takes away the power that my, char- my well-meaning charismatic brothers and sisters had to bind my conscience to make me want to speak in tongues and do the other things that are listed here. The first connection, and perhaps the weakest one, but the first one is Acts 2 connects to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. It's a story where everything has broken loose. 
There is a rebellion happening in the people, amongst the people of Israel. And Moses stands up in the gate of the camp, verse 26 of Acts, uh, Exodus 32, <clears throat> and says, Who is on the Lord's side? Come with me. And all the sons of Levi gather around him. And he says, Thus says the Lord, Put a sword on your side and go from gate to gate and kill his brother and companion and neighbor. The sons of Levi did this, killing those who were in rebellion against Moses. And that day, 3,000 people fell. Moses said, well, today you've been ordained for service to the Lord. And that's how the Levites were formed. So just as the death of these 3,000 marked the setting aside of the Levites into a fresh, purified tribe a forming of their tribe for holy service to the Lord, now 3,000 die to self, die to Judaism, and these 3,000 sinners are born again, marking the transformation of a new tribe, a new family of God, grafted into the house of Israel, not named after one of the sons of Jacob, not, not Judaists, not Israelites, but Christians, They were named after Christ. And thus, this was the new tribe that God brought out in that day. And so the church would have seen what God did in Acts 2 and wouldn't have said, oh, this mass revival with this very specific number that's being recorded, this is something weird. We want want to duplicate it all the time. They would have said, no, this revival and this number that's being given is a sign that God has used before to signal a new tribe being birthed. The second context we need for Acts 2 that sets these events in its bright setting is the Tower of Babel. Some of these extraordinary events in Acts chapter 2 are traced back to a reversal of the Tower of Babel. At Babel, God scattered language, scattered people, and humiliated those who would raise up a temple to their glory. In this case, God is unifying people and unifying their languages so that He can build a new temple to His glory. God reverses Babel, unites His people, makes many into one, and He builds a a new temple for His glory, and He does it right in the middle of the Herodian temple. God announces that this new temple won't be made with brick or wood, but with flesh and bones and hearts who rejoice at this new work of God, redeeming all creation, drawing families to Himself. But the reversal of the Tower of Babel curse didn't need to be duplicated every Sunday any more than the curse of Babel needed to be duplicated over and over when anyone, whenever anyone misused technology in, in order to glorify themselves. Third, consider 1 Chronicles 5. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, Solomon is dedicating the temple, the first temple, and That first temple, the parts of it that remained in that day were about 600 feet to their north from where this was occurring. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 7, Solomon finishes his awesome prayer. Go back and read it. It's magnificent. And then when he finishes his prayer, 
fire came down from heaven, consuming the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, they bowed down with their faces on the ground to the pavement, and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever." So they already had in their mind that the falling of fire upon the temple was the way God symbolized and showed forth that His glory was filling the temple. And so, when the tongues of fire descends on the heads of everyone there, that's the symbol that His Holy Spirit is descending and His glory is filling the temple, the new temple of the Holy Spirit. That's you and that's me. And that new temple wouldn't be rooted to one place in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, Mount Zion. It would be a mobile temple. And it would go all over the world. So, the following of fire from heaven implies the new creation of a new temple where God would dwell. And they obeyed that call and they went out into the nations taking God's glory with them everywhere they went. So I think we can look at Acts 2 and when we look at its context and how it was a part of creating a new tribe like in Exodus 32, reversing the curse of Babylon to show that this new building, this new building was God's will and had His blessing on it, and His Spirit in it, it means we can look at Acts chapter 2 without the burden of feeling ashamed or bad that we're not duplicating this stuff this morning at Evergreen. Having said that, and getting ready to move into my second sermon, there are things in Acts chapter 2 that we should be duplicating that are there, not just for our edification as those things are, but are there by way of making clear to us what the church ought to be doing as it enters into its kingdom ministry. And especially, it's especially important for us to hear when we're entering into times of great transition and great growth. Because what I'm about to talk about is what held this church together and what will hold us together. Number one of seven, they followed the moving of the Holy Spirit. Looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the Holy Spirit was active and powerful and did stuff. What, do, what should we be expecting the Holy Spirit to be doing in our midst? What does the Bible say that the presence of the Holy Spirit should be doing to prove it's there? Spiritual fruit, mm-hmm. spiritual gifts at work, mm-hmm. not all the spiritual gifts, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about necessarily the miraculous ones. No, I'm not saying that God couldn't do some bright, shiny, sparkly, amazing things. But I'm saying that the Holy Spirit primarily demonstrates His presence today through the presence of spiritual fruit. Woe be unto us if we place a greater emphasis on the remarkable gifts listed or the offices listed 
that the Spirit promotes and miss that spiritual fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is what we need to be looking for more than anything. And so, what do I expect in a congregation that would be experiencing revival, in a community that would be experiencing revival? I would expect to see love and joy and patience and peace going all in the midst of us, even while we're in the midst of a bunch of transitions even while we're driving to the wrong place because we don't even have church there anymore. Even while we're going through all these changes, I'm going to be looking for a work of the Holy Spirit in producing fruit in our midst. Number two, they preach the word boldly and publicly. Verse 14 is a good example of that. Peter stands up and lifts up his voice and addresses them. Oh, how we have messed that up in modern times. How many times you... I don't know how many of you have been on a a secular college campus lately, but there are Christian, in quotes, ministries, in quotes, that go around and travel around to secular campuses, hold up signs that say hateful things, and preach, in quotes, once again to people. It is easier to preach against a thousand sins of other people rather than to mortify one sin in ourselves. Amen? Isn't it a lot easier to be mad at some other political party, some other group, than it is to repent of our own stuff? What would it be like to go on a college campus, some secular liberal, I want to go on Brown, I want to go on an Ivy League campus with a sign that says, I'm a pastor and I'm really sorry. (laughs) Wouldn't that be some amazing ways to start some, some conversations? Dress up like a priest, that would be even better. Man, that would start some amazing conversations. A lot more conversations than you're going to hell. See ya. Number four, number three, they answered objections. Verse 15, people are not drunk as you suppose since it's the third hour of the day. George Bush, during uh, his years of service as president, uh, following 9-11, things would get difficult politically. And his idea was, is we just won't answer those out there who are being critical of us. We're just going to stick to what we're doing. We're going to work hard. We're going to get our policies accomplished. And we're going to get out of here mission accomplished. That was his way of dealing with that. And hindsight being twenty twenty, anyone who is, thinks politically looks back on that, says that didn't work. What he did was is get beaten up, bashed, and lied about every day, 24-7, and he didn't defend himself. Moreover, he didn't defend his colleagues. It's one thing to not defend yourself. You can find some nobility in that. But when someone is attacking your friends and you say, no, 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 let's just be quiet, that becomes a character issue at that point. 
We need to learn to answer objections to people. And the church hasn't been good at that. That's why there's numerous parachurch organizations that are designed to help us learn to talk about apologetics and talk about current matters of the day. That needs to be something we get better at. Because let's just say we start to build a church. Let's just say we get bogged down in permitting. Let's just say three years passes and all we've got is a foundation and footers there. Can you imagine what the world will start to say? Well, it doesn't look like that was God's will, does it? It'll get hard. We've got to learn to answer objections like that to our faith to our mission. Because if we're doing it right, we're going to irritate some people. If we're doing it right, we're going to upset some of the worldlings out there. Number four, they quoted and noted prophecy. Did you notice how most of Peter's sermon that is quoted is prophecy? Because he knew that to properly root his words as being authoritative, he needed to quote the people who had spoken God's word in an authoritative way. Presbyterians don't talk a lot about prophecy. Oh, that's for the dispensationalists. They've done it. Or that's for the, 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 the Seventh-day Adventists. That's for the... We had better learn to talk more about the end times and about prophecy. Because if it was good enough for Peter, and if it was a part of the, one of the, the, the very first model sermons for the, the, the church of this phase, we need to learn to talk about that stuff and root what we're saying in God's past works in redemptive history. Number five, they straightforwardly assigned guilt for sin. You, he says, you're the guys who killed Jesus, he says to them. Who knows how many of them were in the crowd who actually were kind of participating in that whole fiasco. Some of them may have honestly been there. They may have heard Jesus say, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they were walking around the days after that wondering how, how can I be forgiven? Here's Peter telling them. Here's Peter telling them how you're going to be forgiven for the murder of the innocent one. What good news that must have been to the ears of those who had something to do with the death of Jesus. What a weight off of their shoulders to learn that the Father had made a pathway for them to make things right with this man that they had so deeply offended. They straightforwardly assigned guilt. But notice, as in, it is directed toward the house of God. Judgment begins with the house of God. He brings this message of judgment, not against the Romans. Those dirty Romans. Did you see what Pilate did? He could have gone off in that direction, but he addressed his brothers and sisters, his countrymen, those who shared his faith. Judgment begins with the house of God. And we need to straightforwardly deal with each other in an honorable, truthful way about our sins that are keeping us from enjoying God and glorifying Him. 
And that doesn't just apply to me. That's you too. Because you know how many days and weeks and some of you years you've wasted because you wouldn't speak up and talk to somebody about what they had done to you or what you had done to them. Number six, they focused on Jesus. This is just a summary of Peter's sermon. Uh, we get let in on that secret because verse 40 says, and with many other words he bore witness. You've got to know that if a pastor has a captive audience of three, four, five thousand people, he's not just saying what's right there. He's going to talk, talk a lot longer than that. And so this is just a summary of what he said. But it was all about Christ. His focal points, his rhetoric was all focused on them understanding that the house of Israel should know for certain that God had made Jesus Lord and Christ. And that same person was the one they had crucified. If we make 2020 all about building a building, we'll be in a mess by the end of 2020. If we make 2020 all about, and you can insert whatever good Christian word you want to, other than Jesus, we'll be miserable by the end of 2020 because our hearts have been transformed and been remade. That, and there's a hole there that only Christ can fill and our mouths have been changed so that we feel our greatest joys when we're talking about Him. About what He did, about what He's doing, and about what we're looking forward to Him doing. He's changed you and He's changed me. And He's made us to where, quite frankly, we can't be satisfied very much in anything else but Jesus Christ. That's what's going to be a very important thing in our 2020. And finally, they lived out this new life for everyone to see. Starting in verse 42, we get some details about this. Now, the story of this growth spurt, some of these are descriptive elements that just tell us what was happening that aren't binding on us today, and I've tried to show you why they're not. And some of them are prescriptive. They are put alongside this time of great growth in order to demonstrate the kind of things that accompany times of transition and growth in order to keep the church in unity. With all the changes that are coming our way, I'm really looking forward to doing it with you. I'm really looking forward to going through this bit of a roller coaster ride that is 2020 with all the people in this room. But I'm more excited about doing it with Christ at the center of everything we do, everything we say, and everything we are. If we keep Him at the center... It's going to be an exhilarating ride. And we'll be giving each other high fives at the end of the year. Excited, delighted at what He did. Let's pray.